Hi everybody, welcome to the podcast. Really excited today to be with Mike Bates, uh, somebody I've known for quite a while now. I've wanted him on the podcast for months and months. Uh, I'm going to let Mike do his full introduction because I won't do it any justice at all. Um, Mike, nice to have you with us. Can you let everybody know who you are, what you do and what you've done? Yeah, well, what do I do? Well, I, I run a Jiu-Jitsu Academy on Street Lane in North Leeds, so you might have seen it, Gracie Bar Round A. I founded that in lockdown when we couldn't go out and I said, I want to start a contact sport and everyone went, you've gone, you've gone mad. I'm not allowed out. But I just resigned from a 20-year career in the MOD and the military, so I was in the Royal Marines, served in Afghanistan, Iraq, Northern Ireland in the early 2000s and then went on to work in intelligence for the MOD, across 15-year career, working in surveillance, running agents, working undercover. And that was, that was kind of my life. And then I kind of wanted to change it. And we've spoken off air just, haven't we, about why I wanted to change that. Yeah. Um, I'm also, a, um, more importantly, a husband and a father of two boys, one of which is an aspiring footballer. And I think that's probably what we're going to get into today, aren't we? We are. Um, I was going to say, then, of all the jobs you've done, the most difficult is that last part there, isn't it? The dad. Yeah, you can, you can convince agents to to go to war zones much more easily than convince your kids <laughs> to tidy the bedrooms, let me tell you. Um, but it's a challenge that I relish almost as a, as a dad because I think we've got a real opportunity with children to create the next generation of amazing people. Mm. And I, I, view my, I view my job as a parent, if you want to call it a job, my role almost, as a really important one because I think if you don't view it in those terms and you perhaps take the easy option with parenting sometimes, you're really responsible mm. for the next mm. generation. And then even the generation after that. So the, the formative years, certainly that my children are in right now, when I was their age, it wasn't this upbringing that I had. It was a broken home. Yep. It was no male role model. It was no one telling me that they were proud of me. I was doing the right thing. And I've had to figure that out for myself. And perhaps that's why I went off to Afghanistan to figure it all out. Um, I don't want my children to have to go do that. I want to help them kind of develop whilst they're here at home and nice and safe. That, and that's one of the things I wanted to get in and why I was so keen to get you on because I think it'd be easy for people to look at you now and think, well, it's all right for him. He's, he's, been, in the, he's been in the military. He's, he's, he's got a successful business. So, you know, that's all fine. But actually, you weren't a good kid. Were you? And I've I've listened to podcasts that you've been on before, and this the stories are brilliant. And Joe will talk about now that so you're not coming at this from I'm almost a you know goody goody check me out. You've actually been on the other side where it could have gone completely the other way for you. Oh, and you've gone through yeah. that. Can you tell us a little bit about your yeah the childhood years? I suppose. Well, I mean, it was a it was a normal upbringing. I, I say it's a, a, it was an unremarkable upbringing because it was really it was a little semi detached house in Doncaster. Um, my dad was a plumber. I was the eldest of three kids. When my mum and dad's marriage broke down, that really sent me into a bit of a spiral. And so by the age of 13, I was, I was taking drugs at 13, I was smoking at 13, I was drinking at 14. I was arrested at 15, mm. um, put in the cells in Doncaster for being drunk on top of a car with my PE teacher in Doncaster <laughs> Town Centre. Um, I was a good drummer, so I was playing in like adult bands and he'd come to watch us and it all got out of hand. <laughs> that didn't do, go well for his career either. Um, I bet he didn't give you detention again. No, though. he didn't. He was a good guy, actually. Ashley Pascoe, if, you, if you're listening. 
Um, you're not listening, but let's just <laughs> imagine it might be. Um, yeah, so look, and, and that, I was I was so bad, I think, in my own mind that I bought my mum a bunch of flowers on my 18th birthday to apologise for how I'd been as a child. Wow. Because I was quite, I would say, disruptive. I was in what we would term therapy now, counselling when I was 13, although I didn't know it was that at the time. I used to have to go to a, a place linked to the hospital called Cheswold House. It was a family resource centre. Uh, and I used to have to tell my mates I was going to an asthma clinic because I was embarrassed to tell them yeah. I was going to speak to people. And my mum was taking me there to try and unpick what the hell was going on. How had I gone from this normal kid at 10, top set, down to the bottom set, and then ultimately I came back to the top set and, and did all right. But it was the period which was really challenging for my mum. And um, and really challenging for me too, right? Mm -hmm. So, mm -hmm. um, yeah. So going back to my kids, like they've not got that. They've got a really settled upbringing, and it would be quite easy for us just to kind of, I suppose, sit back, take our foot off the gas, and just let them do what they want. But I think it's really important to to help them and guide them through, so they don't end up hopefully in those same places that I was. What do you? When I was thinking about the chat we're going to have, that, that's what came to my mind, the fact that you've gone, you went through that period, came out of it, and now I've gone on to bigger and better things and, and more to come. How do you think that... How do you think the whole background has influenced you as a, as a dad, as a parent? Um, I think this, this... I'm not sure my childhood has, but I think joining the Royal Marines certainly has. Mm. Uh, in some positive and some negative ways. Um, and that won't be a surprise to most people listening. You know, the Marines asks a lot of you. Yeah. Commando training is the hardest in the world, the hardest basic military training in the world, um, 30 weeks, and you just get beasted all that time. But they instill in you a sense of self-discipline that will see you through almost anything. And obviously I've lent on those, those experiences and subsequently built upon them in my career in the MOD mm. and now my ocean row and everything else and building my business and everything. So I think what I try and give my children is more than anything else, I try and be a good role model for them. So I don't just talk a, the good game as a parent. Yeah. Oh, you should be doing this. You should be doing that. You need to tidy your room. No one's more tidy in this house than me and my wife. Like we set the standard for how things should be. Um, no one trains harder than me and my wife. Like, we were up at six, we were in the gym, we are working hard. Um, so it, it's no surprise then to my children when we say to them, if you want to play professional football, you need to get up and practice. That's just the way it is. Yeah. So I think there's two parts of it. There's, I try and bring all the positives from that self-discipline. I think on the negative side, I think I'm probably quite a tough parent to please. Yeah, I was going to say that if you... Do you have to stop yourself sometimes... I find it quite hard back to into that into that mindset. I think if I'm being honest, you know, and we're here to be completely candid, aren't we? I think, um, yeah, my standards are high. Yeah, and that that's not, I suppose, it's never dictatorial. It's always a conversation, but it, but I expect, I expect two things to be absolutely nailed on, Luke. Okay, and those two things are. Effort and behaviour. Yeah, I, I don't expect amazing results in the classroom. I don't expect amazing results on the football field or the rugby field or the martial arts academy because you can't control a lot of that stuff. But what, the two things you can control are how hard you try mm -hmm. 
and how good you are as a person. And those are the two things as a parent that I have a pretty non-negotiable level on. Yeah. You have to be good to other people. You have to be kind. And you have to try your best. Mm-hmm. And if you've done both those things, the outcome will just take care of itself. And you get you get more from that as, as, a, as a person to take later in life as well, don't you? We spoke that, about that off air, that if you put the effort in football, jiu-jitsu, whatever it might be, and it doesn't come off, you've instilled in yourself a work ethic that will help you further down the line, whether it be in a job or the military, whatever you end up getting into. I don't think it's ever a bad thing trying your hardest regardless of the... Yeah, no, and, and you, you asked me about kind of like coming from that challenging upbringing to where I am now. Like Damien Hughes, I was on the High Performance Podcast briefly. He, he, he speaks about this wall of evidence. And I visualise that um, as every time you do something really challenging but you succeed, you almost lay another brick in that wall. Mm. And that wall's right behind you. It's like a wall here, look. So it's an evidential wall. It's a real thing. All your past achievements and successes and and even failures, they're in that wall. And so when you turn around, you can see it. And people often ask, like, you know, we spoke about this book I'm writing, like, well, how are you going to do that? How are you going to row this ocean on your own? I just know I can do it because mm. I've got this huge wall behind yeah. me that I've built up over 20-odd years, yeah. 25 years, of working really hard, trying my best, failing sometimes, but bouncing back and never giving in. And that instills in you this kind of inner confidence. And that, that's what I want for my children. Mm. I want them to have an inner confidence that no matter what they set out to do in life, whether that's in business, in on an ap- academic footprint, whatever, they've got a, a wall of evidence that they're creating that gives them the confidence. So when they walk into that room, they're able to yeah. go and be the best they can be. It's a great way. It's a great way of putting it. And you're right. What you said before is all about matching and mirroring. I call it. it it's. I, I've got a two and a four-year-old, so a very different stage of life to, 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 to your two boys. I'm trying to instill things like I want them to read a little bit and get, get used to books, but it's not, I can't just say to my four-year-old, read. She has to see me reading. Yeah. I'd like her to drink a little bit more water than she does. So guess what I need to be doing? And, and, and you're right, whereas you get a lot of people that just expect more of their kids than they're prepared. So Orson and, and Gabe have seen you six in the morning, out, working out, doing it, they've seen what you're doing in your business. And then it's no surprise, and we'll get on to, to Orson, because I've, I've helped coaching recently. It's no surprise to learn that Orson has been out doing training and running at six in the morning of his own accord. You've not told him to do that, but he's really I mean, I'm pretty sure in, in the quiet times, there's, there's a part of them that thinks, I wish you'd bloody not be there. <laughs> And I wish I had a dad who was a bit more normal. I mean, I'm still a super embarrassing dad, right? Yeah. So, like, they didn't know what I did for a career because I weren't allowed to tell them. And I'm still not allowed to... I've been asked by my former employer not to explicitly say who I worked for, so I won't. Um, But when I told them what I did, I thought they'd be like, you're the coolest guy I've ever met. Like, we watch (laughs) Alex Ryder and James Bond and all that. They weren't interested. They still thought I was an embarrassing dad. And I think... I wonder whether part of them... I'm sure they don't. But occasionally I do wonder if they think, this is a bit too tough, this. I wish I just had a dad who sat on the couch drinking lager and watching football because that's an easier existence. Mm. But they haven't got a choice, Luke, because they've got me. So yeah. this is the way we're doing it. And I dare say when they're our age, they'll look back and and think, I'm glad my dad was like. And, and that's the thing was. that I always come back. Exactly right, mate. And so when I'm rationalising that, and I'm thinking, are you being too hard on me? Are you expecting too much? I go back to what I said before. We're trying to create 
a really good human being here. Yeah. Who can survive in a world which is really difficult. You know, life is difficult. Mm. No one's going to just walk up and give you a job. No one's going to pay your mortgage. No one's going to find you an amazing partner for the rest of your life. No one's going to teach your kids that. You've got to do that yourself. Yeah. So we've, we've got a responsibility, haven't we, as I said before, as parents, to be really good role models, have really, really strong values, and to help our children thrive yeah. in that world. Just a quick point. Do you ever say well done? Either of them all the time because you were saying before that are you are you a, a, a bit too harsh at times but yeah do you no all the time mate yeah and, and I always tell them I'm really proud of them mm, even if they failed because I never had that mm. and as I said I, I don't want them to be wondering what they need to do in life yeah but I also will tell them when they haven't done well and I'll also tell them where they've perhaps not met their own or my expectations or mum's expectations around what it is to be a good person yeah and to try hard and. I think it's about being honest as a parent, isn't it? hundred percent. You know, schools now, there's no, sometimes there's no kind of winner's medals for race and stuff like that. I don't get that. I think people should be rewarded for their effort. Mm. Um, I understand that everyone needs to be given an opportunity and I get that. Equal opportunities, I'm everything for, but not equal outcome because outcome is about the amount of work you're able to put in. Now, yeah. some people will say, well, this person's got an advantage. I'm not talking socially here. You know, my son isn't a fast footballer, but he can do 2,000 kick-ups when he was nine years old. Yeah. So there's always a way to, to change the lens slightly, right? Yeah. Um, but yeah, I always tell them really well done. I always tell them I'm proud of them. And I always tell them when they haven't done as yeah. well as they could. It's a, it's a, those two words are really powerful, but it's, it's, a, it's a conversation my, my wife actually had recently with my, I was raised by my granddad, and he was telling my wife about how his dad never said well done to them. Right. And he, my granddad did really well for himself, self-made and whatever. But he'd tell his friends how well my granddad was. So he was proud of him. Right. It was just that this is what you're talking back in the 30s. 40s. Yeah, a slightly different generation. Yeah, exactly. Right? And what's interesting is, is that he... I think my, my, my granddad has always struggled to say, to, he, has, he has told me it, but you could see it was a struggle because because of the area they've gone through. And then the other thing that you mentioned there about being being a good parent, I had this chat, chat to my mum the other day about it. My mum was, we used to call her the, the, the best, worst mum in the world. She'd pull us out on a Tuesday to go to Alton Towers on school day. That type of thing. We loved her. <laughs> she was yeah. brilliant. But she was Petra. She loved me and my brother, obviously, you know, clearly still does but she was petrified of us falling out she hated it if, if I fell out with my mum or, or my brother fell out with my and to the point where there was probably and she would admit this a lack of telling us right from wrong sometimes if we yeah. were fighting she'd kick off obviously but there's times when maybe we should have been told things but we weren't because she didn't want to cause that argument and we had this chat to say but a good parent would praise, well done, proud, but also say, well, listen, mm. that that wasn't good. And you need yeah. both of those things, don't you? You need both and you need consistency, don't you? And I think that's where, I think as a parent, I would encourage anyone to, well, sir, let me just caveat this. I'm not telling anyone how to parent. That, because you've got to do it your own way. Yep. Um, and we, we certainly made that decision when we had our first child or son, that we were going to parent our way. We're going to listen to advice, but we were going to do it our mm. way. Um, I think the, the key thing I would encourage anyone to do is make sure you know what your own values are. 
Make sure you know what matters to you. Um, and you can even list them down, you know. And be consistent with those values. So mm. if your values are hard work, being a good person, being empathetic, whatever that is, that's what you've got to be instilling in your kids on a consistent yeah. basis. Agreed. How do you keep the boys motivated? And that can be sport, school, whatever. How do you, how do you keep them? You were saying before, building that um, wall of evidence. Mm. How do you keep them motivated? I think I try and show them just so on, on the role modeling side, I try and show them what success can look like. Mm. Um, you know, they're like any kid, you know, oh, I want this car, I want a Lamborghini, and I'm older, I want this, that, and the other. And I talk to them honestly about what it's going to take to get that. Um, when, I, when Orson said that he wanted to be a professional footballer when he was seven or eight, I sat down with him and I said, right, okay, well, there's this thing called the 10,000 hour rule. I don't know if you've ever heard of it all. So mm. it's like, Dad, I'm seven. I'm like, right, okay, let me talk you through it. <laughs> so we broke down the amount of years it would take for him to get to a scholarship, sort of 16. And then we divided the number of hours by the amount of weeks that he had. And so I said, okay, you've got to be practicing 19 hours a week, every single week between now and you're 16. Mm. So we've done stuff like that. And we've written that stuff out and we've got him to, we've encouraged him to create charts for the six weeks holders about the days he's got and the days he wants, what he wants to do in those days in terms of practice. Yeah, and that's brilliant. the motivation too, because mm. it's up on his bedroom. Mm, brilliant. Um, we've invested in him. You know, we've, we've given him sessions with people like yourself um, and Matt Ogden, you know, to try and develop him and, and give him that little bit of extra push. Um, but ultimately, like, I think that child needs to be motivated towards that goal themselves. Mm. We're going to get into this, I'm sure, but you know that I always say that Orson's driving the train in his football journey. Yep. So the motivation for him to be a professional footballer comes from him, not from me. Because if I'm motivating him to do that, then I'm pushing him, and I'm, that's a pushy parent. Mm -hmm. And he might not want to play football. He might decide in a year's time he's had enough football. And I don't want him to ever be in a position where he doesn't feel comfortable coming to me or his mum and saying, I'm out because it's not making me happy. So I try and motivate from my own actions. I try and work with them in a practical sense to, to get them to engage in the process they need to go through to achieve their goals mm -hmm. and to give them that roadmap. And that hopefully keeps them motivated. But things like paying them a quid for scoring a goal, like I tried that for a month when he was seven and it's, it don't work. Mm -hmm. So he never passed the ball. Mm -hmm. So, I think it's just got to be doing it yourself, giving them a roadmap to achieving great things and what it takes to do that, and then actually just letting them get on with it. Yeah. It's like you said, maybe having that chat to them about... Because we, we ask parents all the time, asking us for our advice. And so I've had a dad the other day talk to me and he was just saying look, that he just doesn't look that into it when he's there, um, but he really enjoys it. And I said, yeah, but that's... That's fine. He's getting other things from it. He's only five. He's getting other, th he's getting other things from it. And yeah. you know, socialising, communication, speaking with other adults, running around outside, you know, active time. So it doesn't... But I think, yeah, you're right. Once they get to that age and they say, right, I want to do this. I, I hate people get bored of me saying it. I hate all the nonsense on the sidelines, all the coaches that shout stupid stuff, the parents that, sh that shout stupid stuff on the sidelines. But I do believe that if your child has said they want to do this and into, into high school and so forth, like Orson now at York City, if they've said, I want to do this, it's like, okay, yeah, 
I'm not going to be a pushy parent, but I'm going to demand that you give me everything you've got because I'm taking time out to take you to York. I'm taking you to one-to-one. I'm paying for stuff. Yeah, well, we've had this conversation this week. We'll talk about it, I'm sure, in a little bit. But, I mean, on that bit about shouting stupid stuff, I was that parent. You know, like, oh, yeah. I'm not sitting here saying, oh, you know, we're perfect. Like, I helped. He went to play for... We took him... The first time he ever played football, we took him both to Round Asians Rugby. Mm. Um, because it was like 2010 also was born World Cup England team didn't turn up in South Africa I thought he ain't playing football these guys are prima donnas so I took him to rugby which I like to play and um, he just put ball on the floor and started running around kicking it I thought <laughs> right okay he wants to play football and he said rugby's boring this was like four rugby's boring you don't do anything I want to kick it so I said right okay so we took him to Allerton Grange School there was like an indoor setup just once a week on a Friday. And and all the parents start calling him Perlo because he wore a pearl on top. And he had like a little bit of natural flair. Yeah. Not a lot, but just a little bit. Um, and uh, and then he, he joined his first team, Yorkshire Amateurs. And I was expecting him to walk onto the pitch and do what he was doing Alton Grange. But he walked onto the pitch for his first game. Honestly, mate. He stood in the middle of the pitch, frozen, didn't move kind of a half smile on his face because he, he wanted to be there but he, he, he just didn't know what to do mm. and the whole game was going on around him and he kind of looked over at me like shit like what am I doing here and we've gone from there and then I helped coach that team for the first year and I was awful because all I did was rant at him from the sidelines and put him under too much pressure and he just he wasn't playing any flow. He was, he was looking over. I'm doing the right thing, and I'll just be on him and on him. And when you when you're looking at your own child playing football, you're not seeing the team or the game. You no. just laser focus on them. Yeah. And actually, you're biasing all the negatives they're doing. You don't even see the positives. No. You're just like, well, what are you doing? You should have done that. Why are you doing? It was awful. So I said after the first season, I can't do. That. Do you I think? Do you do think you team. did that because of how you? were taught maybe sport and football or was that more your, your, the back, the background? No, I, I did it. Much? I did it only, mate, because I loved him so much and I wanted him to be the best footballer yeah. I could ever be. And I was so invested in his football. It was nothing other than, like, he would go in for, a, like, a tackle and I'd, like, I'd feel it. I'd f- physically feel the, the impact. Yeah. I was so invested in the game. But that isn't ha- a healthy thing to do. I needed to take a step back and I said, I can't do that next season. I want to watch my boy play football. Yeah. And then it was um it was a process then, I would say, over the next probably two, three years, up until him being ten, where I really like every season said, Right, just talk less. Don't say anything. Let him just do it. Don't go talk about it in the car on the way there. Don't talk. and I'm still learning that now because mm. I find it hard. Only because I want him to be the best he can be. Yeah, yeah. But actually, all it does is put him under more pressure. You're right, though, and it's it's something I've spoke to to Nick about. about I think I think a lot of the shouting stuff. It, I think it comes from a good place a lot of the time. You just want what's best for your child, and you're trying to help them, aren't you? It does yeah. come from a good place. It's what people need to understand is that it's it's impacting. I had a chat last night to a to a parent who they played on Saturday, and there was an eight year old being shouted at by parents calling him a cheat mm. and it's like and again taking myself away from the emotion of that it's those parents will just want their children to win that game so badly that they're 
but if you if you videoed that and showed them it two days later, they'd be more well, you'd hope they'd be mortified. Mm. So I do think a lot of this comes from a good place, but people don't reflect often enough to think actually, if you've told Orson what to do for when I don't know how long you've played that, but say ninety minutes now, and now that he's this age, who's won in the end? Mm. Him or you? Mm. What has he learned? You've just told him what to do from minute one to minute mm. ninety. I mean there has been a number of areas of his game, speaking about him specifically, where I think I have had a really positive influence with him. So his physicality, for instance, he was a really timid kid, completely mm. different to Gabriel, my youngest lad, who will just fly into any rugby tackle, he's not bothered. So we've had to work on that. We've had to work on his ability to be able to project his voice in a game and lead a game. And now he's the captain of Yorks at his under-13s team. So he's clearly doing, doing well. But that stuff he's had to learn. And he wouldn't have learned that had it not been for me being with him and saying, look, go into a tackle a bit harder. It's okay, you can do that. And then afterwards saying, look how strong you are when you mm. did that. You see, you're not like kid over. Then he'd actually feel amazing. He'd be like... But that would have been through the game, will it, now? No, that's, that's on reflection. That's the difference. Is that I, think the, I think that's really powerful stuff. But it's more powerful afterwards. Yeah. When you're praising things like a tackle, praising the fact that he is... He, he, projecting his voice a little bit more. I think if you're doing that during a game, it just confuses me. Very occasionally, though, I still will kind of, without speaking, I'll do that. And that's our little thing to him. If yeah. he's gone a bit quiet in the game, maybe he's not had much of the ball. It's like just a reminder, you're the captain. Yeah. Get your team going. And then yeah, you'll hear yeah. him again. And so I, I think there are ways to support your child from the sidelines. But I've certainly learned some harsh lessons um, myself and how not to do it. Mm. What's what's interesting when we've we've been doing this for a lot long long time now, and and recently we we chatted about these three players that we work with at the moment. Uh, one of them, we are pretty convinced she'll end up playing women's Premier League. The other two will likely be professional. Um, one will likely play Premier League. We think. And what's really interesting is when you look at their parents, they're like you in terms of. Right, you want to do this? Let's do it. I'll invest in you. Uh, but you're giving me a hundred percent if we're doing this. We're doing it properly. But it's led by them, like you say. It's been led by us, and they have said, "I want to do this." And the second that they say, "I don't," they've all said, "That's it. It's done. Forget it." Out of interest, of all the children that you teach, then those three, how can you highlight them? Is that from a technical perspective? Is that from a character perspective or is it a combination of a number of different yeah things? so ability clearly is, is one thing um and what you, are you looking for with that but age? You get <laughs> movement as in how they move yeah. as well um they, they've, they've clearly got and alex the alex ferguson quote he always said they've obviously got to be able to play but it's also the character um so it's how they strike a ball it's how they dribble the ball how they move the ball how they move themselves how they control the bodies but this, the biggest thing we see is the mentality mm. it's they are obsessed that word they are obsessed they're obsessed with winning but they're obsessed with learning when we coach them it's at a different intensity i mean i'm shattered after i coach some of these kids because they've kept me on my toes it's a it's a different level of intensity um that that for me is, is 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 what separates them. But I think some parents get lost in, oh my kid likes football, so that means they're obsessed with it. Yeah. There's a there's levels to it. And yeah, and that that I suppose is my conversation in my own head. We spoke about this in the kitchen. Um, 
about Orson driving the train because, and I mentioned it before, like, only he knows how much he loves football. Mm. Because, of course, any child wants to please the parents. And he knows that I'd love him to be successful in whatever he did. But he wants to play football, so obviously I would love him to be successful at football. So I often have that conversation myself, like, does he really love it? Mm. Is he obsessed? Or where is he on that scale? And I think that's something that I wrestle with a lot. Because if clearly if he's not obsessed out there doing it all the time and football's everything, he ain't going to make it because the kids who are obsessed will. And then I wrestle, and this is just my own internal struggle, I suppose, as a parent. How much should we invest in him now then? Because will he look back when he's 16 and wish he hadn't done it, now he hasn't made it. Mm. And how much have we lost of his childhood, where he could have been just riding about with his mates on his bike, and he could have just been going bowling or going to the cinema, and he's not doing that, he's playing football. And was he doing that for himself, or was he doing that for us? I think that's a really difficult, yeah. complex question. But I think the best thing you can do as a parent, and certainly I try and do, is constantly have that conversation with yourself all the time. Yeah, and it's that line between fun and work and as they get older it starts being a little especially if, if they have got because i've coached Orson, as we said he, he has got this mindset of i want to i want to do it i want to get all the way if he's still enjoying playing then fine but the second he stops enjoying it and it becomes work that's mm -hmm. when when you're gonna have issues i my whole ethos now has changed massively from when we started to now and i, and I think for us it's about keeping children involved in sport as long as possible and well into adulthood. So even if Orson doesn't go on to bigger and better things within football, how nice will it be when you're 60 and he's having a knockabout on a Sunday morning playing Sunday league football or Saturday league football, yeah. still enjoying it and still got a smile. I think that's a win in the end. And I dare say, all, and we spoke about this in the kitchen, I dare say that all the stuff that he did, getting up at six, training, two or three times a week, playing two or three times a week, has helped him succeed in other things in life anyway, and whether yeah. that's in football or not. Yeah, I mean, York have just started this new initiative, which is really good, actually. Um, that they're talking to children now, Orson's age, well, throughout the whole academy um, age groups, about the other jobs in sport mm. that aren't mm. just professional football. Yeah, yeah. And the earlier you can have those conversations, so I've said to him, like, what are you going to do if you're not? Like, let's be honest the chance of you making it pro is so slim and unrealistic. Not just because of where he is in the in the scheme of things now, being at York City, because that's the very bottom of the ladder, right? But the way he moves, he's not got natural pace, but yet yeah, he's really technical, he's a natural leader, but like the chance of you making it are pretty slim. What are you going to do? He wants a coach. Yeah. Great. Yeah, yeah. Well, that, have that as something else you can do. He said, even said, I want my refing. Like, oh, I'm not sure about that. <laughs> but you need to have some mates when you're older. But even like coaching, so there's a guy who's rowing the Atlantic, same year as me this year, who's Man City's under 18s coach. He was okay. under 14s coach last year. Really, really lovely bloke. And he said he was heading towards semi pro football, realised he wasn't probably gonna, good enough to make it, and so jumped out early to start coaching, mm. dedicated his time to coaching. And all the rest of his cohort continued to play fizzled out, but he was so far ahead in the coaching, he's now at Man City's under 18. Yeah, yeah. So I think 
again, those are conversations with us and that we'll continue to have with him as he goes through his journey. Um, but at the minute, there's the captain inside, so he's obviously doing something this is, a, this is This is a, a good thing for parents to know. That there's not, there are so many f amazing things for, for children to get involved with as they get older within within football and within sport. You look at, let's look at football specifically. There's now the rise of semi-professional academies that are putting children through, uh, or teenagers through college. Mm -hmm. And then there's scholarships to America, which one of my best friends did. Fantastic experience, four years out there in California, Florida, then New York. He's, he's got stories to tell. He's, he's made lots of friends worldwide. There's a lot of different things. The coaching thing is something I'm, I know now a lot of academies put them through courses because we've got an ex-pro with us now, which he's, he, I'll tell you so in a second, and he's got his badges as a result of that. And I think it's a fantastic thing. I Like your man there at Man City, I I was playing semi-professional football not and, and I knew I wasn't good enough. I knew I wasn't, I didn't have that extra bit. So I dropped back and started playing my friend's Saturday football, did my coaching badges and and now I'm working full-time in football, yeah. which ultimately is what I wanted. I'd love to have scored a winning goal for England in the World Cup final, clearly, but I'm working in football and enjoyed it, and that's yourself with jiu-jitsu. It, it, and that's what I think a lot of parents listening to this need to understand, is that if the, the more fun you can make it, the more committed you can make them by not being that obsessive parent, the chances are they'll end up getting into something as a result of staying in the game longer that actually makes them happen. Yeah. There's something else as well, I think. <clears throat> so he went to York. He got, I don't know where they saw him, but they saw him playing football when he was like seven. And they said, oh, we want to invite him down to York's development centre. So he went down there and there was like, I think three or four tiers to get to the actual shadow squad or, or whatever mm. when he was seven. So we, we went through all them and he kept moving him on, moving him on. And then they said, oh, we want to sign him when he was nine. But we just felt he was too young to be in any academy. Mm. Um, so we said, no, thanks. We walked away. We went down to Catalan and made an agreement with Matt that we were going to continue his development there for a number of years and then come back to the academy system if he was good enough um, when he was a bit older. And then he, he went trials for Leeds City Boys in his final year of um, junior school. Primary school, yeah. Primary school, yeah. He was sent to mid. Got through to the final trial. We think he probably had COVID because he wasn't well. He went to a trial. Right. Just missed out. And I called York back up and they said, look, I remember him, bring him down. We want to put him on a month's trial. And after a week, they said we want him, which is brilliant. My point being, we weren't trying to get into Leeds United or Man City or Man United or mm -hmm. Liverpool. Mm -hmm. or York City is all right. And it's it's good for him in so far as it's a really lovely setup and there's much less pressure. So he's likely, because he's... Well, I think anyway, of course, any parent thinks this. He's in the top percent of his academy side. He's mm -hmm. the captain of the team. He's doing quite well in York City. I'd much rather we were there and thriving at a lower level academy than he was scrabbling about and on the bench at Man City yeah. and not getting a game yeah. and then getting released and then falling out with football and then trying to find a new club. And I don't want that for him. You I don't think he's the... And I think this is where you've got to really think hard about the type of child your child is. Mm. I don't think he's, I'm not sure any child is, but certainly also, I don't think he's resilient enough in himself to take those knocks. Yeah, and it's it, really interesting what you said there about the fact that you could have taken him to that environment. Because, you know, regardless of where York are on the tier, it's a, it's an, an academy system. 
taking him away from that or not letting him go into that at, at eight, nine years old and letting him go and essentially play yeah. is there's so much research now gone into the fact that actually spending, not being in these places from a young age benefits because you do build a little bit of grit. You do build, as much as you just said, you do build a little bit of different sort of resilience compared to some of these kids that have been in academies from five years old. Those three that I mentioned prior, one of them, um, he's at the Premier League club. He didn't join until I think he was under nine or under 10. And interestingly, his mum told me that a lot of the kids in his team that had been there since five have been released. Yeah. And she thinks it's because of the fact that he was allowed that play time. Uh, a lad called Luke, great name. He's just joined us as a coach. Um, Ex-pro, signed a contract, signed a pro deal the same day as Jack Clark for Leeds United, who's now at Sunderland. Um, one of the youngest in Leeds' is history to sign a scholarship, really well regarded. He didn't join a grassroots club until he was 12. A grassroots club. And he just said, yeah, I just played. Because there's all these things, that, you know, this formalised training that takes a lot of the spark away yeah, from yeah, kids. So I think the way that you did that was brilliant. Um, and, I'll, and there's lessons to be learned there because I think people, uh, misconception, if I need them in an academy now. And then they also think that once they're in this academy, that's it now, pension, get me the, get me the Merc, get me the Ferrari. Yeah. Like, no, 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 that's it. Yeah, I think it depends where you are. But the guy I'm talking about at, uh, at Man City was telling me that they'd made from their under-18 squad last year 48 million quid in selling players from Man City's under-18. So clearly, and he said, like, those lads who are in um, that academy at that age group in his team now will be millionaires themselves next year. Which is a bizarre thought. Mm. But if that is your motivation to become a footballer, it's such an extrinsic motivation that it's not going to keep you going when no. everyone else is working no. really hard. You know, you've got to be intrinsically motivated by wanting to achieve anything which is hard to achieve, whether that's joining the Marines, whether that's owning your own business, whether that's being a professional sports person. It has to be about wanting to do it for you. Yeah. And that comes back to then, doesn't it? Like, why is my child telling me they want to do this? Are we having honest conversations about the amount of work it's going to take to get there? And then what are we putting in place to help them achieve? But how are we holding them accountable? Mm -hmm. So let's get on to what we were talking about before with Orson. So we always say, and I've always said, that he drives the train. And we are just passengers on the train of his football journey. Now, we'll keep shoveling coal in that train to keep it moving if he mm -hmm. wants to keep driving the train. But we're not going to keep shoveling coal in if he isn't the one out there working really hard. And so even this last week... We've had another very frank, quite upsetting conversation together as a family with him where I'm saying, look, this was the deal and your, your training's dropping off and it's dropping off and it's been replaced by things like Snapchat, mm. which is fine. Like, you've got to have your friends and I get it. Sorry, Matt, I'll just shove that away. Okay. You, you've, you've got to do that. But that can't, you can't be spending more time on your phone than you are with the football. Mm. Because if you are, that's a choice and that is your choice. But it's not commensurate with the amount of time it takes for me and your mum to get you to York three times a week. That's not fair on us as a family. And as I've always said to Sarah, we don't want to get to 16. And I've said it earlier, we get, it gets released and we think we should have pulled the plug earlier mm. because he weren't that bothered. So it was another frank and honest conversation this weekend. He was quite upset by it, but it was honest and open. And six o'clock Monday morning, he's in the garden, in the pitch black, kicking the ball about. Do you think that was, do you think that was him 
is he going back to what you said earlier? Is he doing that for you, or do you think he's doing it for him? No, I think he's doing it for him. I think I think he because um, we always say to him, we we say we're not bothered if he play football or not. Mm. I couldn't care less if he play football. Mm. Honestly, I don't care if he he plays football or does something else. But if he's going to do it, he's going to try his hardest because yeah. he's chosen to do it. So no, I think it was a bit of a shot across his bowels again, a little bit of a wake up call. And we need to consistently do this with children, don't we? As they as they mature and start to see the world more broadly, because he's now in year eight. They've got phones. Girls are starting to come on their horizon. Bloody hell! At his age, I was smoking weed, right? So mm. like, there's all these other things starting to appear, and he has to make choices. And I think you can't make a decision with a child aged eight, and then not have another conversation with them until they're sixteen. It's going to evolve, isn't it? Yeah, yeah and of course. I think it's just re- reaffirming those. If you want to be transactional about it, the agreement you've made as a parent and a child, and I, I think sometimes there's actually real benefits to that. Saying, "Okay, tell us what you want. Mm. I want to play football. Okay, this is what it takes, and this is what we're prepared to do to support you. But it's an agreement. We're going to shake hands on it. If you don't live up to your side, then we'll take away our side." And I think that's absolutely fine. Yeah. If you don't do that, I think what can happen almost without realising is that you become that pushy parent. You're driving them to York or Man City three, four times a week. They're bloody miserable, but they don't tell you they want to stop. Yeah. And I'll tell you a quick story. Um, so a friend of mine, really good friend, a guy called Alex, his dad worked in the oil industry and they lived in Saudi. And he was a really good swimmer, still is a really good swimmer. And... Um, he was so good that he swam for the Saudi national team, the Kings team, right. schoolboys. Only white kid there, but he was an amazing swimmer. And they came back to the UK and he went to boarding school. And they were sat in the principal's office and um, his dad was telling him he swims for the Kings team and the principal said, brilliant, you're going to swim for our team and nationals and all this kind of stuff. And he said, right, Alex, we just want to have a conversation just with you without your mum and dad about the school. So his mum and dad walked out and he said, all oh, right, brilliant, I like swimming. And Alex turns around to the principal. He was only, I think he was 14. He might have been a bit younger. He said, I never want to swim in my life ever again. As soon as these, they've gone back to Saudi, I'm not swimming again. Really? He said, all I've had for the last four years is my dad stood at the end of a pool with a stopwatch. Not good enough. Do it again. Not good enough. Do it again. He said, I hate swimming. But he couldn't tell his mum and dad. Yeah. I don't want my kids to be in that position. So, you know, Consistent, honest conversations, I think, with each other and giving your child a chance to quit mm. is fine. Mm. And I'd much rather that than being in a position where Alex was, where he felt petrified to tell his parents. Yeah. And he had to wait till they left the bloody country to yeah, stop the thing that was making yeah. him miserable. Because you can make it fun. And you look at the you guy there, he stood at the thing with a stopwatch. I think some kids would benefit from... Just going out with a mum or dad in the park and having a kick around. And they go, oh, yeah, but it needs to be formal training. Not all the time. That, that's yeah. a little bonding time where they may be having these wobbles. And they get that little bit of love back. Cause, yeah, it's, it's my dad. My dad's having a kick around with me. Yeah. That's what I want. I want, I, want to, I want to enjoy it in that way. There is that. But you, you're right. The, the swimming thing is, I think they're a different different level uh, of training, aren't they? With, um, the ta- the, certainly the times of day that they have to do it as well over here it's like five in the morning and stuff like that it's, so they've got to want to do that they've got to want but it's to like anything that. it's a dedication isn't it you've got to be dedicated to your craft whatever it is you want to do 
Um, and unfortunately, these days, there's so many people and the bar's so high as a, as a cost of entry to be a professional mm. that you're going to have to be relentless in your pursuit towards that goal. And if you're not, there'll be someone else who is. Yeah. The, 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 this is the thing, the stats are about 99.99% of, of UK football, UK youth footballers will never play a professional football match. The um, One of the parents I'd mentioned before, they they said that in the academy, they were told that, was it 0.4% of all the kids in that academy would play a Premier League game, not play Premier League. They might, they might, that might come off the bench. It might be one game, then that's it. That's the stats that we're working with. So it's what else can, let's work towards that, of course. Let's work hard and what else, get all the lessons from that. But let's not make it 100% that needs that needs to be what happens otherwise you're a failure it's i love what you just said there around it's almost like a course correction isn't it right okay awesome you said you wanted to do this your actions haven't really shown us that you wanted to do this so let's have a chat yeah no dad i want to do it I've just had a bit of a wobble i want to get my head right right brilliant and then we go again but that lesson that he's learned from having that conversation with you will take him further than in terms of the stuff that he's going to do later in life, just the fact that actually, yeah, I've, I've had a few bad weeks at work, but you know what, right, but yeah, I'm on it now, let's go again. And we're engaged in his journey, aren't we, as parents? You know, that's, that's we're not taking our eye off the ball. No. Pardon the pun, you know, we're engaged in it. You know, we're engaged in his well-being. Because that's part, the, the main thing of having conversations like that, mate, is just checking in with him. Mm. Is this still something you want to do? Because it's okay if it's not. I'm forever saying that. Mate, it's okay if you don't want to yeah, play football. Yeah. Tell me you don't want to play football, please. But some parents won't want to hear that, so they won't ask that question because mm. they are they that that would be the worst thing for them. Those parents that are obsessed for their kids, that would be the worst thing for them. And sometimes you just need to have that difficult conversation. And it's and, and it it is there's no instruction manual, is there, with this? There's the there's the point of we were talking before about comfort zones, weren't we? And about how some parents keep their children in this bubble where actually they need to let them be a bit uncomfortable sometimes, but then it's the right, how how much do we do that? Mm-hmm. How how comfortable do we need to make them? I think that is a good example of taking him out, taking Austin out of his comfort zone where you've sat him down. Right, talk to us, mate, what's going on? Yeah. That's that's taking him out of his comfort zone there, which is which is a, again a brilliant thing which I think I'm gonna be using that with mine as Mine are two and four, Mike, so I'm having very different conversations. We normally talk about Peppa Pig and Paw Paw Interestingly, though, I mean, my two, and you're, I'm sure yours are the same, are very, very different children. And I didn't, mm. didn't realise that that was actually a thing, the nature-nurture thing. I thought, blank canvas, I'll just, we'll just develop two, you know, yeah. amazing people. But they're, they're very, very different and, and amazing in their own ways. Awesome was the kind of kid that, even at one year old, if you gave him a, a little jigsaw to do, he could not leave the room until he finished it. That's just the way he is. Yeah. He's just obsessed with like a perfectionist kind of trait. And that's what happened with his kick-ups, right? And that story I've told a million times about him wanting FIFA when he was seven. And I said, well, how many kick-ups can you do? And he said, three. So I said, right, I'll buy you one. We can do 100, thinking it would take him years. <laughs> and he went out every day in the six weeks old. And by the end of the six weeks old, he could do 100 kick-ups. And then it was like, right. But that lesson there, not... You do something, you get reward. There was partly that, but it was about if you dedicate time to something, you will be able to do it. Yeah. And then you'll feel amazing because you can do it. 
It's that delayed gratification, yes. right? For yeah, yeah, yeah. How many kids are going to be prepared to go out into the garden in the rain instead of watching a screen and fail and fail and fail and fail and drop the ball and drop the ball? But the feeling they get when they can do 100, and we went to Barcelona. So he could do 100 kick-ups on his right foot, then it was 100 on his left foot, then it was 500, then it was 1,000, then it was... Then we read um, You Are Awesome by Matthew Sayers, yes. great book. Yeah. And it talks about Beckham doing 2003 when he was nine, yeah. Ferguson saw him. So that was his kind of like, can you be the same as Beckham? And then we, we went to Barcelona and he used to take a ball with him wherever we went. Still kind of does. And he was doing kick-ups around the streets of Barcelona. I've got um, footage of it. Like, <laughs> couldn't drop the ball. He was like glued to his foot, kick, both feet. And a bloke came out of his shop in Barcelona and says, this, I've never seen anything like it. In Barcelona. Brought him into the shop and literally put him in the shop window. <laughs> it was a sports shop. Literally put him in the window and said, do some kick-ups there, this is amazing. Then everyone take a picture of him. That feeling of being special because of something you've yeah, done, yeah, yeah. I think was a really strong memory for him. Yeah, yeah. That he's been recognised for being that little bit different, that little bit better perhaps than other people because of the work he'd done. Yeah. Um, so he's trying to create things like that for children, isn't it? Giving them opportunities to develop but not doing the lazy parenting of just making it too easy. Yeah. The, de the delayed gratification thing is huge. We could do a couple of hours on that, you and I, I'm sure. But it, there is that balance of, well, of, 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 of giving them the rewards for success, for things, that, but, they, but making sure they've worked for that as opposed to them getting it instantly, which there's, there's a lot of science behind dopamine hits and things like mm -hmm. that, that once they get it quicker... The, those receptors are almost worn away over time because then they just start to demand things yeah. and then you get a spoiled kid. But, yeah, that's brilliant. And also, yeah. like we're in, you know, we're naturally lazy, aren't we? So yeah, yeah. We want to be safe. We want to, you know, that's just the way we are. Um, and it takes a lot for a human being to strive and to push outside and to do things which are challenging. Um, but that's the only way you're going to achieve Definitely. meaningful things over time. That's, uh, that's some story for the boy to tell when he's older, though, that a shopkeeper in Barcelona, in Barcelona. of course, uh, we, we got married there and we were having the reception afterwards and one of my friends came up to me and said, oh, have you ever thought about, you know, maybe opening one of your foot tech academies over here? I said, I think Barcelona have got it covered for me. <laughs> <laughs> we took it to the new camp and, I, and that's partly why we went. Because, again, part of your job, I think, as a parent, if your child is telling you they want to do something, is to create inspiration mm, for them. Mm. Now, I can't do under kick-ups. You know, I played schoolboy football, but that was it. So taking him to matches where he can feel that experience and he can watch Messi score a hat-trick, oh, nice. free kick from outside the box, it was yeah. like perfect, sun's out, brilliant. <laughs> um, but those, those moments of inspiration are what we can do as parents, can't we, to yeah. create this image in the mind of what, you know, the art of the possible. Yep. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I think that is important for parents to do. There's the practical element of it about finding pathways and how to achieve goals and having agreements and supporting, but there's also the magic. Yeah. Um, and what can you do as a parent to just create that little spark in, in your child's mind? Definitely. Last question for you, Matt. It's been brilliant. I really appreciate your time. Would you do anything differently? You can just say no to that, but would reflecting on... Oh, there's always something you do differently. If, if anyone, 
to, an, to answer that question with no, you'd have to be a narcissist <laughs> or, or a, a, a psychopath. There's always things you can improve and do differently. Um, I think I would not have coached his first team. Mm. I would have um, not screamed from the sidelines. And um, I think that would have created an, a, a really important age for him, kind of seven, eight, nine, a little bit more freedom. Mm. And I wonder, I don't think I have, but I suppose in my mind, if I hadn't have been that parent who wanted it so much for him, if I was able to take my own emotions out of it, I wonder whether that would have made him an even better player. Mm. Mm. Um, that's probably it, really, because I think everything else we could have done to support him, we have done. You've reflected on it and then, that, yeah, yeah. yeah. You've mentioned the row couple of times and I wanted to finish by telling everybody what you're doing in a is it 50 days Leave, leaving the country in about 50 days yeah it's about 60 days now so can you just because this is the background you've had and what you've achieved already but then to be doing what you're about to do is a, a different level so can you just tell us a little bit about yeah I'll tell you why I'm doing it first just to frame it because obviously we've spoken about motivation haven't we quite a bit so Orson was five weeks premature so we had to feed him through a tube and stuff but he was alright but Gabriel my youngest boy was nine weeks early three pound see through on life support then we got him home after the intensive care stuff and then he got meningitis back into intensive care lost him a few times got him back really really poorly baby so it was in that experience that I understood for the first time that the specialist equipment in the PICU isn't bought by the NHS, it's bought by charities. Mm. And so I wanted to do some uh, meaningful, I know you've been through similar experiences, yep. meaningful for other people in our community. Um, so I initially raised about 1,500 quid in 2011, but I felt like I wanted to do something more. So in 60 days' time... <laughs> while everyone's having the Christmas dinner, I'll be rowing solo across the Atlantic from Lagomera and the Canaries to Antigua, 3,000 nautical miles. Um, just me. I'm supported by the Talisker Whiskey Atlantic Challenge, which is an organised event. Um, I think it would be a little bit too risky um, to do it without some support on mm. land, but it is an unsupported row, so I won't see anyone else for those days that I'm out there probably going to take me anywhere between 50 and 90 days. And look, part of the reason I'm doing it, it's not just for the charity. We've raised 150 grand already. It's brilliant. I'm thankful for your support as well, mate. Part of doing it, and I was talking to Austin about this when we were having this conversation about his football on Sunday, was that at a really important age for them, at the age when I was off the rails, doing all sorts of crazy stuff, I wanted to show them that even their old dad, yeah. their embarrassing dad, can do stuff which most of the people can't do. So there's lots of people now rode the Atlantic, but there's more people gone to the moon than rode the Atlantic solo. So to do a process and a project which takes years, and I've been at this for over three years now, I've sacrificed a career for it and an amazing job and everything else. For them to witness that, at the minute they're telling me they're not bothered. I hope when they're old enough to reflect on it, yeah, 100%. that they'll realise that some of the lessons that they've learned through this process have been worth it. And when they're standing in Antigua watching me raise a red flare as I come 
mm. you know, across the finish line, knowing what I've gone through, and they see the state of me yeah, after sixty yeah, yeah. days at sea, then going out in the garden and kicking a football when you don't want to when it's raining will just be a walk in the park. Yeah, matching and mirroring like we spoke about. That's I don't think it gets much better than that really. And where can people? If people listen to this now that would like to get behind the the initiative and and uh, and donate or you know just spread the word, um, where can people find? So you and yeah, yeah. So the Atlantic Grappler, the Atlantic Grappler is the website, AtlanticGrappler.com. You can find me on Instagram, uh, at the Atlantic Grappler, and Facebook as well. Uh, you'll be able to see me go set off live on the twelfth of December on Facebook, at Atlantic Campaigns. Um, their Facebook page. You can track the boat across the water nice. every four hours. It'll give you my exact location, speed, course over ground, where I am in the kind of standings in the race. And I would encourage any parent to talk to the kids about this. Yeah. Like there's a geezer in Round Day rowing across the Atlantic, right? There's a, in fact another bloke did it a few years ago. So it's use it as a tool to inspire your own children. This this campaign, this project is raised a lot of money and I'm very proud of that but I'm more proud of the amount of people it's pulled into the vortex mm, of mm. positivity so in lockdown I posted all my workouts online and people all over the world saying this has just got me off the couch thank you um, they rode a marathon every New Year's Day 5am for the last three years <laughs> don't know why as you do <laughs> but look you, use this if you, if you want as a tool to inspire yourself inspire your children and if you want to get involved and support it then please do we'll tag um we'll tag you in and uh, put the website on the um on the links that we send out and stuff but yeah it, it, the fact that it's for such a, an amazing cause as well as you say close to close to my heart as well that the work they do in that place is is literally unbelievable so the the fact that it's it's, it's raising money for a local establishment that, that helps our children as well is just i'll just say this mate real quick so We've just purchased, so I've just transferred 65 grand over to Leeds Hospital's charity, and we've purchased 10 neonatal monitoring machines that Amazing. are going to be in the PICU before Christmas. Amazing. So, like, to be able to do that and to have people in our community who've helped achieve that, even before I've started rowing, yeah, it's, it's unheard of, man. Yeah. You know, most people don't realise the funds until after. So, we've made a huge uh, impact already. Um, but I want to keep doing more. I'd love to raise 200 grand, 250 grand. Let's just hopefully. Um, yeah, so if it, we'll, we'll tag everything in, guys, and if you can help, please please do. Mike, thank you so much for that. It was brilliant. Um, and I'm sure we'll chat again soon. My pleasure, mate. Thanks, buddy. <laughs>